Lord, we thank you tonight for your word, that you have spoken it and written it for us to turn to any time, day or night, and to be built up in it and to be fed, to be sanctified, to be equipped unto every good work. As we turn to your word tonight, we pray that you would deliver any of us from this dreaded curse of familiarity where we would turn to it and just expect it to come forth in word only rather in the demonstration of the Spirit and in power. We pray that you would give us an expectation in our hearts for you to speak to each one of us individually in some way from your word, right from your throne, and by your Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, we ask that you would answer that prayer in each one of our lives as we turn to your word that's going to outlive the heavens and the earth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. John's Gospel, chapter 21, final chapter in John's Gospel. And as we come to chapter 21, we're on the other side of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, and now dealing with some of the um, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, uh, which went on for 40 days following his resurrection prior to his uh, ascension. And so we pick up uh, this time period uh, in John chapter 21. And after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee. In this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together, now waiting for Jesus up in the north, seven of them, waiting for him up in the north in, in the area of the Sea of Galilee. And as they're waiting here, Jesus said to the other six, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, "Uh, we are going with you also. And so they went out and immediately got into the boat and it was night and they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And when Jesus, then Jesus said to them, children, do you have any food? And they answered him, no. And Jesus said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude uh, of the fish. And therefore, the disciple, (coughs) that, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged uh, into the sea. So these events occur uh, uh, at the opposite end of uh, Israel from Jerusalem, and uh, where the concentration of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection occurred there. These happen now uh, in the north, where most of the disciples were called from Uh, that constituted the apostles in his kind of inner um, circle. When the disciples, and it's very important to understand in terms of what's happening here, when the disciples left Jerusalem to go north to the Galilee, that was not something they did on a whim or as an act of self-will. Jesus had instructed them 
to go up into the Galilee and to uh, wait for him. And so the disciples went up there. They were obedient to that point. And then somewhere, as they're waiting for Jesus here, uh, Peter in verse 3, he uh, announced that he's going back uh, fishing. It's important to recognize that this is a, uh, a prayerless decision. It is a decision of self-will. It is what he has just decided uh, to, to do on his uh, own. And so they're somewhere near the Sea of Galilee at this point, and, and uh, out of the blue, Peter makes this announcement. And so Peter was a man of action, he, and uh, those of us who are people who like to do, we like things to be productive, we like to get things done, we don't like waiting around. And that was Peter's temperament. And so, uh, and that, that has its strength, but uh, like any, uh, any unguarded strength is a double weakness because we can then start to fall under the motto, do something even if it's wrong. And uh, Peter did that more than once and he appears to be in that, that same place uh, right now. So uh, he was a fisherman. He's back in his old stomping grounds. He sees the sea. He sees the lapping of the waves, the smell of the water, the whole uh, aspect of his own uh, old life. And so he's going to go fishing just to dip his toe back into the old life uh, just a little bit. We're told in verse 3 that the others then uh, joined him. It's very possible that what is happening here is more serious than just a little bit of... um, uh, fishing. It isn't unlikely uh, that I- at least Peter and maybe the others are tempted at this point uh, to quit what it is that Jesus has called them uh, to do and to uh, reintroduce themselves back into their old life, a life that they knew very, very well, a life that supplied and put food on their table, a life that they were uh, experts in. And so uh, they knew uh, how to fish. Uh, They obviously didn't know how to do this apostle thing very good uh, just yet because they haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit, which we'll see next week in the book of Acts chapter 1. And so this was uh, familiar ground for them. And uh, so they start to, I think, in my mind, retest the waters perhaps uh, a little bit. The big problem with all of this is the Lord, as I mentioned, had just simply told them to go to the north to Galilee and wait for him. And, uh, and, and Jesus was not in any way leading any of them back into the fishing occupation or back into their uh, old life. I think it, it's interesting that, and it's certainly true of, of pastors, so I assume it's true of all callings, whatever the gift and the calling God gives us in the body uh, of Christ, that we can hit a point in the ministry where things aren't quite going the way that we think they were going to go. Um, we are terminally conscious of our own insufficiency for what it is that uh, Jesus has, has called us to do. And uh, there can be that temptation then to want to go back into uh, the old ways. I remember my first winter here uh, in Modesto, and I'd been, uh, I was born in Henderson, Nevada, but raised in my childhood and youth and young adult life in Napa, California, and uh, worked for the phone company. That was the longest stint of almost 10 years before I got saved and then, and then came here. But I, I hit that first winter, 
And um, I'd never known a winner like a Modesto winner. On that particular one, uh, the, the, uh, I don't know that the sun came out for the entire month of December. So there's a little melancholy weather-wise uh, on all of that. I knew that when I started to be, was going to be a pastor, I knew that I didn't know a lot. But I, what I didn't know is how much I didn't know and how overwhelming that would be. And, uh, and, uh, and to realize I know nothing really about what I've stepped into here. And uh, we started, uh, started coming up and teaching here in Modesto, three and a half years old in the Lord. I really did know nothing uh, and hardly know anything today, all of these decades uh, later. And then, of course, you get a spiritual warfare coming in. And I remember uh, walking and trying to figure out the Bible and figure out what did God want to bring out of this passage and so much trying to understand it from my own self and all. And I, uh, some nights as I would walk in the dark, I would beg for God to give me my job back at the phone company. And, um, and much to my shock, he didn't give it to me. And, and it can be a very interesting revelation that once we commit to what he has called us do, to, he doesn't accept resignations. He's just not going to allow it. Uh, you're in, I've got you going on this thing, I've got something in mind, and I'm not going to give you the freedom to, commit, uh, to, to quit any time that you want to in this. And so uh, Jesus isn't going to allow them to do that if that's on their mind here. We noticed that they fished all uh, night and they caught nothing. Uh, nighttime fishing is the favorite time of fishing for uh, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus in the morning, he's standing there on the shore, verse 4. Disciples don't know that it's Jesus. Jesus then asked these fishermen uh, that had caught, fished all night and had caught nothing. He said, children, uh, have you any food? Did you catch anything? So it was very customary for um, the, the uh, fish uh, dealers in the marketplace there in the area of the Galilee to go down to the Sea of Galilee and then meet the fishermen as they would come in from a night of fishing and ask them if they had any catch. So they might then buy that catch and sell it in their shops during uh, the day. And so he posed the question to them and their answer in verse 5 was, uh, no, and uh, that was the truth about the night, and it's not always easy to get the truth out of fishermen, and uh, not all of them. I saw a bumper sticker one time that said, I fish, therefore I lie, and uh, somebody else has cast doubt on all of the Gospels, saying you can't trust those Gospels, they were all written by fishermen, and uh, that was a person that was uh, uh, less knowledgeable about the Gospels than he realized. Only one of the Gospels, John's, uh, was written by, uh, by a fisherman. And uh, here he tells the whole embarrassing truth about things. Jesus then, in, uh, in verse 6, he gives them what's probably seemed to at that moment in time to be the worst piece of fishing advice in the history of fishing. Uh, they have fished all night and caught nothing. These are pros. These are pros. 
And, uh, and so they come in, they haven't caught anything. Jesus' counsel to them is to cast the net on the right side of the boat and they would uh, find them. And so Jesus is in effect communicating, you have been fishing off of the wrong side of the boat all night long. That's your problem. And, uh, and, and so you look at it and, and think these boats were not that big. Have I been missing the school of fish all night long by eight feet? Uh, the width of, of the boat. And so uh, I think they had to look at one another and think, oh, brother, what is, <laughs> who is this fishing coach on the, uh, on the, the, the shore? And, uh, and uh, probably fishermen are not that excited about someone who appears to be a novice related to these things, giving them uh, tips. That would be like me giving a tip to a fisherman. Um, you know, have you tried a rod with some string and some bait? You know, it's about where I can go on it. And so they, they cast the, they obeyed his counsel here. Uh, they caught a multitude of fish. Uh, no small thing at all. It made no sense for them to throw that net on the other side of the boat. They did not know that this is Jesus yet, uh, but, but they, they did it and, uh, and were so discouraged and so desperate that they uh, heeded the advice of this, this stranger on the, on the shore. And the result was uh, the net, as we'll see in a moment in verse 8. The other disciples came in uh, the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits dragging uh, the net uh, with the fish. And so they come in with a, a, a net that is uh, uh, full of fish. John, in verse 7, he immediately uh, recognizes this to be the work uh, of Jesus. It immediately, as that net is pulled in, there is something wonderful about pulling a net in and seeing it full of fish. When you're a fisherman, I, suppose, I, I imagine that would be exciting to me. And so these fish are f- uh, uh, thrashing around there in the net and uh, in the Apostle John here, his mind goes back to Luke 4, I believe it is, where Jesus uh, earlier in calling them into the ministry to begin with did a comparable miracle with them in uh, catching a large uh, amount of fish. And so he re- realizes immediately this is the work of Jesus and uh, Peter's reaction is to jump into the water and uh, and uh, uh, swim uh, to the shore. Uh, John's a man of thought. Peter's a man of action. And then the rest came in more slowly, dragging the net uh, of fish. Jesus, as soon as they had come to the land, verse 9, they saw uh, a fire of coals there. Jesus already had a fire going. He already had fish uh, laid on it and also bread. So a little bit of protein, a little bit of carb to start the day. And uh, Jesus is, uh, you, you know, it wasn't s'mores uh, or some roasted Twinkies or some deadly kind of thing that you could uh, give them. This was something that was uh, going to be substantial for them uh, for the coming day, especially with the rough night uh, that, that they had had. And so he called for them then in verse 10, bring some of the fish which you, which you have just 
uh, caught. And uh, he called for them not to cook them, but, uh, but to count them. And then that large uh, group of fish came up. Peter then went back down to the shore. He dragged the net to help the others to land, uh, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, that was a big catch for small boats and and, uh, nets, the net was not broken. So uh, 153 good size. Um, uh, fish. So people wonder about uh, the, the fact that it was 153 fish. But if you take uh, the 153 and you multiply it times seven, which is the number of completion, and you divide it by six, which is the number of man, um, and, and then you introduce the Pythagorean theorem, you end up with the day of the Lord, the day of his return. Now, the, Sometimes the answers are so simple. The reason the record is of 153 fish is because that's how many fish they caught. And it was uh, sufficient enough that they recognized it to be uh, a miracle in their own uh, lives. And so uh, Jesus then invited them in verse 12 and he said, come and eat breakfast. He invites them, uh, yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was Uh, the Lord. Jesus then came. He took the bread. He gave it to them, ever the servant, ever the servant, and uh, likewise the fish. Now, this was the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he he was raised um, from uh, the dead. Now, there are important lessons to be found in this uh, incident, and there they are ministry lessons. They are uh, for mini- lessons for fruitful service and ministry to the Lord. Clearly, this uh, incident and this chapter here, event between uh, Jesus and and these seven disciples here going fishing, it wasn't supremely about fishing or about uh, fish. Uh, the fish end up being. Uh, uh, completely ignored ultimately on the scene as we're going to see Jesus is teaching them a larger lesson about uh, uh, living a fruitful Christian life and and a fruitful Christian ministry. I think we learn one lesson here and that is the, the danger that my old life can be to uh, the will of God. And so they had been fishermen. It would have been fine to be fishermen uh, if that is what uh, God intended for them to do with the rest of their lives, but now he wants them to be what he called them to be, and that is fishers of men. Again, Peter's um, uh, decision here is a prayerless decision that he makes, and so uh, he he might be thinking that's over, this is done, I've I've blown it, Uh, Jesus has restored me uh, privately, uh, but not publicly, and Uh, I have an option to go back to my old life, and it isn't an option. And that temptation in Christian service to jettison that area of service and go back to something we're comfortable with and uh, something that doesn't require the supernatural, uh, we think in our lives like uh, what it is that we were raised doing or becoming an expert in can be a very, very real temptation. Also, we learn about our lives that even in our area of expertise in life, uh, anything I can do, he can do better. 
so we've got the little song that goes the little ditty, anything you can do, I can do better. Well, this is a variation on this. Anything I can do in life, Jesus can do better. And no matter how expert we are in that field or that, that area or that issue, no matter how familiar we are uh, with that, how much life experience we have invested in it, uh, Jesus can do everything better uh, than uh, we can do it. And so we have to be especially prayerful and careful to hear God's direction about things that we know so well in life so that they remain under his uh, direction. And so here we are, uh, we can be uh, very, very much an expert, a very experienced in some area of our life. And even in that area, God knows far more than us. And we say, well, yes, there's a theological fact. I accept that. But uh, practically, it works out a little bit uh, harder than that. And so the Lord wants to add the, that element of the supernatural uh, to what we do and to our Christian service, and he's not to be fought related to that. Anything he tells us to do, how no matter how crazy it may seem, on the level of throwing your net on the other side of the boat to catch fish when you haven't caught fish all night, that when he speaks that to us, he knows what he's talking about. So that when he then does what it is that he has in mind, he will then be noticed in the situation and be glorified for what it is that happens. Because everybody will look at it and they will say, there is no way that could have happened apart from uh, God. If our... Christian service, or if, for instance, the Christian service in a local church, if that, if that the, the fruit of what is happening in that local church can be explained in terms of the natural talents collectively of the people that attend that church, then God is going to go unrecognized, and he's going to go unglorified in the midst of, of that uh, that church. It's when people look at our lives uh, and they say, God must be real uh, because the fruit of their ministry can't be explained in terms of their natural abilities and their talents. We never want anybody, for instance, for myself, others, pastors that are in the pulpit and others, the worship team, we never want anybody to leave and say, um, I enjoyed that, so to speak, and, um, uh, and then be convinced that, uh, that what they saw was a, the culmination of natural talent. We want them to leave and go, man, I, uh, I know those people, and there is no reason uh, uh, God's voice and his anointing and his blessing should be a, a, upon that. And the fact that that place is fruitful at all or individual human life is fruitful at all, that is an indication that God is real. And so, uh, and that will require a supernatural kind of uh, aspect to, to our lives. If you are a Christian who is a lawyer and as you begin your study of 
the cases that you have, one case, let's say, in particular, and you bow your head before the Lord and you ask the Lord, help me to see what it is that I need to see and understand about this case. And we're asking him where to cast the net in my area of expertise. And he will do that. If a person is a waiter or a waitress, you're an expert in it. You know the menu inside and out. You don't even have to write it down, which makes me stand in awe of people that do this. Eight people at a table and they can memorize it and take it back and be roughly accurate, uh, which is good enough for me. And, uh, and, and we could, you could do it in your sleep and yet uh, to start the shift to be able to say, Lord, direct me to hear and, and to see what it is that I need to see. And uh, I want this shift to be supernatural for you. Show me where to throw the net here on this coming uh, work day that I have. And so you add your expertise to uh, that list and, uh, and, that, uh, and that recognition. Lord, I've been doing this for 30 years, but I don't know anything compared to you. Where do I cast my net? Life experience is very, very good. And it is a very, very good uh, teacher. But if I rest solely in my life experience, uh, and rather than upon uh, God, uh, then, uh, then, this is, then I'm going to uh, lose this supernatural dynamic. Uh, and, and I think that in terms of this attitude of where, where I, I live with an attitude as a Christian that anything I can do, he can do better. Uh, the, the, the number one characteristic of a person that operates under that, that uh, maxim uh, is a person who prays. And prays most especially and continues to pray in their life about areas that they're very familiar with. They're very confident in our abilities in, in those areas. Prayer is an expression of our dependence uh, on God in any area of, of my life and any area in my life that I have ceased to pray about because now I'm running on natural talent and life experience, then that is, a, that, uh, is an indication that I now feel self-confident in and that part of my life will not be marked by the supernatural. The passage also teaches us that Christian service will always uh, require faith. So this is an odd thing that Jesus asked them to do. So I'm not saying that we take a model of doing something presumptuous or crazy in our life that is self-willed in order that God would get the glory uh, related uh, to it. Um, But uh, it it is important that uh, God will tell us to do things that don't make any sense to anyone but himself in order that he can uh, receive the glory that he wants to in that situation. He uses us. It is our blessing to be used. But he doesn't just use us to use us. He uses us so that when people see him use us, uh, he is glorified and people are drawn uh, to uh, him. A little bit about failure. 
And Peter had certainly experienced an awful lot of failure, uh, even prior to this, of course, in his uh, threefold denial of Jesus on the morning of his crucifixion. But when we fail, and I consider this to be uh, a failure, not the biggest one in the world, but uh, one nonetheless, but that failure is never a time to quit. If we're, especially if we're more of a perfectionist kind of person, uh, failure is something that can be hard for us uh, to deal with, to acknowledge, but it's never a reason uh, to quit. So much of public ministry is public. So our failures are public. It's not an easy place. It's not a safe place uh, to grow in the Lord in uh, these kind of public callings. And it really requires great grace on the part of God's people to uh, allow that to, to happen. But nothing's a complete failure that forces me to uh, trust the, uh, the Lord more. And uh, they did fail, but they learned a lesson uh, from it. And so they responded, no, we haven't caught any fish. They admitted their failure as, uh, as fishermen here, their return to it. And uh, not easy for a fisherman to admit, even harder, I think, for a failure for ministers to admit, but they were willing to do that. One Christian writer has said that failure is the most creative phenomenon in life. I don't know that I could argue against that. Uh, it, it really, really is in our life. As long as we let it do its needed work in our life, and uh, failure causes me to reassess things in my life, and it causes me to take that area of my life and go back to a dependence upon God that usually I have drifted away from. Now we turn to Peter's restoration here in verse uh, 15, his public restoration uh, as uh, an apostle. So we remember that Jesus, on the morning of his crucifixion, uh, Jesus, uh, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. Um, he was alone among the apostles uh, to do that, even before when Jesus prophesied of the fact that they would all deny him, they would all run away from him uh, on the, the, when the time of his crucifixion came. Uh, Peter, with great self-confidence and boldness, he uh, declared publicly before Jesus and the rest of the apostles, though they all deny you, I will never deny you. Well, uh, you ever heard the saying about uh, being damned by faint praise? I mean, that's just a slap in the face. Everybody knew what was going on there. I'm better than all of these guys. I can see every one of these guys denying you, but not me. That's not going to happen. And you warned me ahead of time. So now it's really not going to happen. And yet he did. He did. We know from... Um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a great chapter on the resurrection, that sometime between Jesus' uh, resurrection from the dead and these events, Jesus met Peter privately and restored him privately, his relationship, uh, his failure privately between him and Jesus. But the damage done by Peter's denial wasn't just toward Jesus. It was toward the others they had been sinned against uh, as well. So Peter made a mess. It was a public mess, not even supremely the denial, 
but his comparison, comparison, uh, comparing himself with the others, throwing them under the bus, some real damage has been done now in the relationships between them. And it's like, that's what Peter thinks about me? That's what Peter thinks about the rest of us? We're all chopped liver and he's the next pope? I didn't mean to say that, really, but it... But I mean, that, that's, I mean, anybody would get the message from him on it. And, uh, and so now this has to be cleaned up with the rest of the disciples because Jesus is not done with Peter despite his failure. And he's not done with the, with the others. But now they have to work together going forward. And so they need to see Jesus restoring, publicly restoring, recommissioning Peter back into his uh, office as an apostle. And so this uh, is exactly what happens here. Beautiful scene of restoration in the Bible. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus then uh, said to Simon Peter, so the whole focus goes between he and Peter. He said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He could be talking about, because there's a big pile of fish over here on the side, do you love me more than fish? Do you love me more than fishing? Do you love me more than your old life? He might be asking that. I, I'm inclined to believe that he is, at, he is referring to the other disciples and referring to Peter's boast that he would never deny them. Peter, do you love me more than these other men? Is there, is there sitting, uh, sitting there? And when Jesus asked them that, he said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love? And the word love that Jesus uses there is the word agape. Do you love me? That is the, the love that comes from God. It's an unconditional, uh, divine, beautiful, strong love. Highest word for love you can find. And Peter responded to Jesus' question, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The word love that Peter uses here in response is not agape, you know that I agape you. It is, you know that I phileo you, I love you. I love you, phileo, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. You know that I have a warm, fond affection uh, for you. And then Jesus, he accepts that and he said to Peter, feed my lambs. He said to Peter a second time, and uh, if you're in Peter's shoes, you're thinking, okay, we got past that. No. <laughs> He denied him three times. Uh, Jesus is going to uh, allow him now to confess his love for Jesus three times. It's beautifully thorough. And uh, he said a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? And he said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And he said to Peter, tend my sheep. And then he said a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Here, Jesus, he jettisons uh, agape. Now he comes down to Peter's word uh, that he was using, phileo. Peter, do you phileo me? Do you have a fond affection for me? Peter was grieved because he said uh, to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things you know that I phileo you. And Jesus said, uh, feed my sheep. And so uh, here is this beautiful, beautiful uh, restoration 
that occurs. And so here is uh, every one of the disciples knew that uh, Peter's uh, denial uh, was due to his own pride. And, uh, and so they needed to know here publicly that Jesus, despite his failure, was not done with him in his calling as an apostle, which he reiterates three times in the phrases, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and, and feed my sheep. And so that exchange goes on. Two, and uh, he calls on them now uh, to, it calls on Peter, having established this and restored him publicly, he tells him three times uh, uh, variations of the same thing. Feed my lambs, as I mentioned, tend my sheep and feed my sheep. Two ways in which a pastor or a shepherd shows his love to God is in tending and feeding uh, God's flock in the local uh, church. Feeding them, uh, spiritually feeding them with the word uh, of God and then looking out for their uh, welfare, keeping them safe. And so when you see people like me, other pastors, uh, teachers in the body of Christ that might not be pastors, but certainly pastors and leaders like Paul is called, uh, Peter is called here. Uh, one of the greatest ways that we have to show our love for the Lord is to minister the Word of God to His people, the truth of God, and to encourage people in it, and then also to look out for them, to tend them uh, in, in their uh, lives. And so, uh, when he calls on Peter here to feed his sheep, I mean, you can ask the question as opposed to what? As opposed to uh, letting them starve spiritually. And those are the stakes uh, related to all of this. Uh, everyone would be up in arms if in, you had some facility like a hospital or an orphanage or something and people were starved physically, uh, but oftentimes there's absolutely no complaint or outrage at all when a congregation is starved uh, spiritually, not given enough nourishment to uh, withstand the spiritual demands that are placed upon our lives in the world in which we live and are endeavoring to live the Christian life in, in the, the midst uh, of it. And so uh, we are to do that, uh, tend God's sheep, feed his sheep, with the recognition that Jesus did not say, uh, tend your sheep, feed your sheep, but feed my sheep. Uh, no, I, I don't view one person in Calvary Chapel. I have never viewed one as my, my sheep. I don't even view my wife that way. She has her own relationship with the Lord, and of course we're one, and so there's dynamics related to that, but I don't own anybody. I didn't save anybody. I don't sustain anybody. I don't strengthen anybody. I don't provide uh, for people and, and do all the things that God does in our lives. And there's that recognition that they are his sheep and what he wants done with his sheep is that they're to be fed and they're to be uh, tended. And what would we think of any person who was entrusted with the care of uh, another person's children who then starved them to death. And so it's a serious business for leaders to um, uh, express their love toward God in feeding the flock as Peter was called to do. There's, um, uh, 
Some people find fault with uh, Peter here because of his use of the word phileo versus agape. And you've got to give him credit. He's honest. He's honest. Uh, there are some of us, depending on personality, um, you might be a people pleaser or whatever that kind of thing is. It would work or something like that. And, and Jesus would say, do you agape me? And I say, you know I have a warm affection for you. And then Jesus says, do you agape me? And then, all right, he wants me to tell him I agape him. And so I'm going to say it. He doesn't do that. And no guile with him at this point. He's being very honest about himself and, and how he views, uh, views himself and his relationship uh, with the Lord. I think that uh, Peter's failure to rise up to the heights of agape here in this exchange is very, very commendable in the light of the circumstances. He had failed in his area of strength. And Peter's strength, uh, among his strengths, was his boldness, his decisiveness, his self-confidence uh, in and all, and uh, he had failed in that very area of his uh, strength. And so here is Peter. He's gotten by his entire life on natural talent, on being pointed in the right direction. You show me the wall to run through, and I will run through it. He's gotten by in the early part of his ministry on natural talent and determination and, and this, uh, you know, can-do kind of attitude. And now finally he gets put in a situation where he fails miserably. Those things fail miserably uh, in his uh, life. And that is uh, something that shakes you at your core. Everything crashes, and for a while when you're in Peter's place, uh, and, and, and we can be in Peter's place in a lot of different circumstances in life where now we have no confidence in ourself in this situation. And you got to have confidence in life. You have to have confidence in, in ministry. But his confidence is all misdirected. He's crashed and he's burned. And, and, uh, and so here he is, uh, and uh, not going to, to speak boastfully of himself. He's already done it before, and he's very, very vulnerable here. And uh, he doesn't really know what Jesus is doing here. Jesus, we have no indication that Jesus told him, listen, I've restored you publicly. Now I'm going to do this, uh, I mean privately. I'm going I'm to restore you publicly, and then this is how it's going to go. He doesn't know where any of this is going except sentence by sentence in, in the conversation. And so uh, right now, he's just kind of sorting through the wreckage of his denial and very, very public uh, humiliation and uh, wondering, who am I? What do I do? What, what, um, what do I really have with the Lord? I thought I loved him. I thought I would run through brick walls for him. I thought I would die rather than deny him. And I didn't do any of those things. And I mean, he's rocked in, 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 his own, in his own life, and he's sorting uh, through all of that. And, uh, uh, and Jesus comes along, and, and uh, as Peter is here, and the one thing he doesn't want to do is he doesn't want to boast anymore. So I'm not going to boast. I'm not going to say, I can do more than... Uh, uh, than 
then I know that I can do. And, and this beautiful, beautiful humility that's been introduced into uh, Peter's life. And Jesus now, in all of this public restoration of him, Jesus is saying, I'm not done with you. The plan continues, but now you're going to operate out of humility. And then in Acts chapter 1, the day of Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit, rather than the self-confidence that you've operated in. When you have an individual who is supremely self-confident and, and uh, in a way that keeps him from being dependent upon the Lord, God has to break that. He has to break that to use that person. And that is so uh, in, in, intrinsically a part of their identity, how they've gotten by in life. And it's a very, very difficult trial and uh, it can seem like I'm done, I'm cooked, I have nothing to offer uh, God now. And yet we're just beginning when God does that uh, in our lives. And so it, it's, uh, it's never the, uh, the end. And so he doesn't trust himself anymore. There's a humility, a very, very healthy uh, sense of uh, a mistrust of self, self in, in all of that. In the past, Peter would have um, he would have leapt to uh, agape and then tried to find Jesus, I double agape you or something. I mean, this is, this is who he was, but that's not, that, that's not who he is now. And this exchange here are two things that are happening here. And the first thing is, is that Peter's being given three opportunities to express his faith uh, to Jesus um, and to to. Uh, in, in contrast to his three denials on that, that morning. And second, uh, Jesus was commissioning Peter to feed my sheep, to be a shepherd over the flock, and just say to Peter, uh, I'm not through with you uh, despite your uh, failure. And then Jesus does something very, very interesting in verse 18. He tells Peter how he's going to die. Now, I for one would rather that my death takes me by surprise. I know we've talked about it before, but people say, man, I, I'd like to know the day that I'm going to die and how I'm going to die. No, thank you. I wanted, I wanted to come as fast as getting hit by a train. And uh, uh, I have no interest in living my life knowing that this date or this is how it's going to happen. The way that my mind works, it would never shut off. It would just become obsessed with that. I wouldn't, for me, per, in terms of personality, I wouldn't have a safe place to compartmentalize that. But Peter's a better man than me. And so Jesus said to him, verily, verily, or most assuredly, I say to you, that when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where uh, you wished. You're very, very independent. But when you're old, uh, you will stretch out your hands and another is going to gird you, tie you up, and carry you where you do not uh, wish. And this Jesus spoke, signifying what death Peter uh, would, uh, that he would glorify God by. And when he had said this to Peter, he then said to him, uh, follow 
uh, me. And so the specifics of, of Peter's death is that he would, um, uh, and one of the things he's communicating to Peter here is that uh, this is how you're going to spend the rest of your life, following me. This fishing thing is out. It was wonderful as long as it was happening, but I'm going to use you to feed my sheep and to strengthen uh, the, the, the brethren. And so he lets him know that until the day you die, you're no longer a fisherman, but you are a shepherd in the body of Christ. The specifics of Peter's death is it's laid out here. The timing is very important. Jesus told him, when you're old, this will happen to you. The means by which he would die would be as a, a martyr's death, by crucifixion is what's, what's being uh, described there. And uh, he's being told that he'll serve into old age. And at the end of uh, his life, his hands will be stretched out, which is a, a euphemism for crucifixion. Um, so why would Jesus tell Peter these things? I mean, is, is, it, is it cruel to hear? No, it, it, uh, Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, this is, it's a mess right behind you. We all get this, and, and you get it more than all. But you're going to be faithful to me to the very end going forward. Not perfect, but you're going to be faithful. And you're going to serve me all the way to the end of your life, and you will never deny me uh, again. And no matter what you are forced to face, uh, even not only even facing death, but the worst kind of death, and that is the death of crucifixion, you will walk faithfully in this calling all the way through all of that. And how encouraging it must have been to Peter to be reassured of this. Not from his own lips. He didn't want to hear anything he had to say about himself, but from the lips of the Lord him, himself. And so it happened with Peter. Church tradition tells us that Peter was ultimately uh, incarcerated in Rome under a great persecution against Christians at the time of, of Caesar uh, Nero. Uh, he was severely scourged, and then he was crucified uh, upside down, his head upside down. It was uh, the position, church history tells us, that he requested, not believing that he was worthy to be crucified right side up as his Savior had been uh, crucified. And so really, really hard to uh, picture our beloved Peter in the Gospels hanging upside down on a cross lifeless, but there was no complaining on Peter's part related to uh, any of this. And so you, you look at this and you look at Jesus as he speaks this uh, to Peter. You say, how could Jesus, who loved Peter beyond measure, beyond anything that he could ever put into words to Peter, and then without the slightest hesitation or the slightest regret, he calls on Peter to follow him, knowing that that following him is going to end in a, a violent uh, death. You say, what in the world could make that worth it? Following him, to follow me. What else are we going to do with our lives? I mean, once we become Christians, we're spoiled. And we, know that we know the actual meaning and purpose of our lives. We're tapped into something that the world cannot offer anywhere else. And, and it is the privilege of being able to follow him. 
and to be in his will and to know in my life, I am in the will of God. Even if the will of God means I'm hanging on this cross upside down. You take, and, and I'll just for an examination in our own hearts, you take away the confidence and the peace and the joy that is ours as Christians, that is ours knowing that we are in the will of God, and then say, we're going to, I will offer you to be spared death, but you have to give up those things. Take my life. I can't live without those things anymore. To walk with him, to talk with him along life's narrow way, to know that I'm in his will, to live with that kind of confidence uh, in life. And if that will means this, the will is worth more than my self-preservation on any level. And he brings us to that place. And it's a wonderful thing for building a barrier within our lives from uh, denying him. And Peter counted it a privilege when that uh, time came. Well, Peter is evidence of the fact that he isn't filled with the Spirit yet, and um, he's not perfect yet, just like all of us. So after this incredible restoration has occurred, this incredible revelation of the rest of his life and his even his death, Peter then turns around and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, that is the Apostle John, who had also leaned on uh, Jesus' breast at the supper, the Last Supper, and said, Lord, who is, it, uh, who is the one who betrays you? And Peter sees uh, John and he says to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? What, what, what are you going to do with him? And then Jesus said, if I will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Ouch. You follow me. In other words, M-Y-O-B. Mind your own business, Peter. I've, I've restored you. I've told you how you're going to live. I've even told you how you're going to die. You have plenty to take care of in, in all of that. Keep your nose out of John's business and what it is that I'm going to do with his life. And so mind your own business. Don't mind my business, what I'm going to do with John. Don't mind John's business. Just mind your own business and get on with my call uh, 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 upon uh, your lives. And so uh, Peter here, always involving himself in somebody else's business, and, and, uh, and Jesus uh, pulls him up pretty uh, straight on all of this. There are some people who are so busy minding everybody else's business, they never get to their own business in terms of God's call upon their life. And so uh, Jesus nips that at the bud. You focus on what I've called you to do. And then the saying went out among the brethren that uh, John would not die as uh, a result of what was said here by Jesus, a misunderstanding of it. Yet Jesus did not say, John tells us to him, uh, that uh, to Peter, that J uh, John would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that uh, to you? And so P uh, John here, he's an eyewitness of the conversation. He's the subject of the conversation. And he clears all of that 
uh, up here. And uh, this is the disciple who testifies of these things, John says. He's an eyewitness to these things, wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, he says, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books uh, that would be written. And so one of the things I think that 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 always um, emphasizes to me is with what we have in the Bible, Old Testament and the New Testament, and uh, certainly true of the Gospels, as John talks about it right here, is that um, there is so much God could have said in recording the events, the miracles, the teachings of Jesus. And, and here is this, uh, this uh, verbiage, this phraseology that he uses to let us know there's so much more that could have been written than has been written within the Gospels. And so when we, when we turn to the Word of God, we realize it's a distillation. It is every single thing is so important uh, because other things that are not necessary for life and godliness have, have not been included and these things uh, have and it makes us appreciate uh, what it is that is before us. And so John concludes here by reminding us that this account, this gospel of John, uh, like all of the gospels, is not an exhaustive account of the life and the ministry of Jesus, but it is the account uh, that God wants us to have. And so we'll finish there tonight. And uh, we'll pick things up in Acts chapter 1 as we continue through the scriptures, God willing, um, next week. Now, we have a tradition at this church that whenever we finish a book on Sunday night, um, that uh, afterwards we have Costco cake. I'm not saying it's the greatest tradition in the world, but it is our tradition. And we've done it all the way since 10th and F to just celebrate, spend some time fellowshipping, uh, having completed a study of another book of the Bible. And so after the service, out in the fellowship hall, there'll be Costco cake and then uh, milk and all of those things to to drink it down. And so avail yourself um, uh, uh, of that. Let's stand together now and uh, we'll close in prayer. Father, we are thankful that you recorded anything for us to study. We just look at the simple lessons and the truths about your kingdom and how to operate in your kingdom while in the kingdom of this world and how important they are. And here's your Bible just full of these kind of things. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for what we've learned as we've gone through this gospel. Thank you for, most of all, what we've learned about you and, uh, and using it here to conform us into your image and to deepen us in our relationship uh, with you. Thank you for your word. 
We pray you bless these desserts that we're about to enjoy and even more so the fellowship that we'll enjoy over them. Bless the kids as all of that goes on as well. Thank you tonight as we sang in so many different ways this evening for your goodness to us, your grace toward us. We see Peter here, what grace, but we look at our own lives, Lord, and if the stories could be told publicly about how good and how gracious you have been to each and every one of us. So we praise you and we give you thanks for your love for us, your heart toward us, your commitment to our lives, to our relationship with you, and and to your call upon our lives. Thank you for the privilege, Jesus, of being able to follow you in this uh, crazy, crazy world, dark world that we live in. And we thank you in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.